0: welcome to just go grind a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship I'm your host, Justin Gordon. And in this episode, we have Jack O'Halloran, who's the co-founder and CEO of Scale Labs, a company that's solving the blockchain scalability problem. And Jack's also a technology entrepreneur focused on blockchain decentralized systems. He also co-founded Octana, the leading SaaS sales and marketing analytics platform for global life science companies. He actually maintains a strategic advisor role still with the company, the company he left a few years ago to start Scale Labs. And in this episode, so we talk about growing a team, managing growth and not growing too fast, the fundraising process, user owned economies, and so much more. As always, the show notes are just go grind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over an Apple podcast. This episode is brought to you by Hawk Media, a full-service outsourced CMO based in Santa Monica, California, providing guidance, planning, and execution to grow brands of all sizes, industries, and business models. Hawk Media is recognized by Inc. as one of the fastest-growing marketing consultancies, and their collaborative process, a la carte offering, and month-to-month fee structure gave clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23, if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Without further ado, here is Jack O'Holloran, co-founder and CEO of Scale Labs. Jack, welcome to the show.
1: Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yes, great to have you on. And there's lots to discuss, uh, as always. And for people who aren't familiar, people who haven't heard of Scale, give us a high level overview of what what Scale is, what you guys do.
1: Yeah, so uh, Scale is a blockchain scalability platform. So it's infrastructure to help make blockchain usable, cost-effective, and really fix the ultimately the user experience issues. So, I think a lot of people, especially people listening here, knowing the type of audience that is listening, probably knows uh, a lot about Bitcoin, knows a lot about Ethereum, but probably also says, "Well, hey, this stuff isn't very usable. Like, how many people actually use interact with a blockchain on a daily basis? I know people own Bitcoin and Ethereum, and but what else? Is there? <laughs> and, and you know, we're actually building infrastructure that brings an Amazon Web Service type experience uh, to the playing field for blockchain. So if you're a developer and you want to leverage a blockchain for an application, you can connect, you can build it on Ethereum, which has this robust uh, developer tooling ecosystem, and then you can connect it to the scale network, which then makes it fast and cost effective. And you can even basically run a decentralized cloud like you can on Amazon uh, uh, and AWS through the scale network. So. We uh, we're really trying to take take crypto and take decentralized networks and user owned economy Web three uh, digital currencies and make them extensible to hundreds of millions and and potentially billions of people as opposed to you know a hundred thousand people interacting. <laughs> with stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And when people you know who know of AWS and that's, it's powering so many companies at this point, uh, it's kind of insane. So that's, it seems like that, like you mentioned, is kind of what you're trying to do with, with scale as well. And what I'm curious about too, is how did this come about? I know you're a past founder as well. How did you decide to start this?
1: Yeah. So, so I, my first startup was 2005. I was with a company called Good Technology and uh, mobile computing. And, you know, we, there were the only the killer app in mobile back then was email, and you know what? Nothing else worked. You had games, you had business applications. <laughs> at Good, we had almost every Fortune 500 customer using Good for email, and we tried to launch an application platform. You know what? No one used it. No apps got on mobile in 2006 because guess what? Device speed sucked. Internet, uh, yeah. you know, we didn't have 4G and fi- you know 5G and ETL. like we. We, we just didn't have the same, same technology. It just wasn't a good experience on the device and in network. So we're in the same place in blockchain. And I kind of saw that curve and that knee of the curve growth when I was at Good. And then a few years later, there's like a million p- people simultaneously playing each other in supercell games across the world. Um, and so really saw that growth. I then got into uh, and had been doing enterprise software, but then got into machine learning and AI. And I started a company called Octana. Also, which in its earlier version was actually a digital currency platform called Incentive (laughs) uh, randomly enough. But, you know, then got into SaaS and doing software as a service, uh, delivering machine learning and AI and did that for nine years and and ended up almost every single uh, biotech and farmer in the world uses this platform to optimize healthcare communications with doctors. So if you've ever had a prescription, whether it be for, you know, someone who has oncology, uh, a cancer that has a genetic uh, discovery and then gets a, a genetic immuno oncology drug or even just a primary care drug. Um, a lot of that goes through, most of that goes through the Octana system uh, or knowledge goes through to help get the right prescriptions to people. So, um, built that company. And, and, you know, I was, uh, after nine years, I went out to start another company. And um, every day was going and working in the SASTR office in San Francisco, building another SAS company. But you know, spending all my day just reading about crypto. And what really (laughs) captured my attention was this this concept of user owned economy and user owned groups. And it's almost a co op of a business. So this business model transformation excited me. And I recognized that the only way to really deliver on the promise of a user owned economy or Web3 uh, is through crypto it's you need blockchains you need rules and frameworks and smart contracts and so then dove into the space and you know re- really quickly it's like you know people listening here know about product market fit let me tell you that it was like hitting us right in the face we need faster more scalable infrastructure and that that's really uh that's that's the sh- you know I can go deeper but that's <laughs> high level of how I what brought me here to try to solve this problem
0: what was it about though that drew you in what was it that kept you still interested and curious? Because I know there's a lot of people who've read about cryptocurrency and read about blockchain and they're interested, but then they don't start a company to really do it. What was it about it? Then?
1: So when I was working at a Saster, I, I was looking, you know, I knew marketing and, and, and sales technology and machine learning and AI and I, you know, anything in and around CRM and marketing automation, I just became a sweet spot. And I was yeah. looking in that space, and there were over five thousand funded companies in San Francisco, like literally Jesus. in the city of San Francisco, that were like, uh, I think Series B down to seed. And I was like, okay, like it's every single damn problem had been <laughs> <tough> and, <working laughs> on. and you know the same thing. You know, my clients in pharma. I didn't know anything about pharma by the way until we landed some big clients. We ended up servicing the life science industry and became an expert there, but what happened And just, you know, a, a corollary example in pharma back in 2005, all of a sudden they realized, Hey, you know what? About 90% of people only have these hundred issues and we've already solved all of them. And, and, you know, if you have like a blood pressure medication, if you fix it, you're going to make like one, 1,000th percent better than the other 20 drugs out there. And they're like, okay, so now they're going into rare diseases and going into cancer, going into you know more nuanced things that have higher price points but the common problems have been solved and i was i was looking at the b2b space i was like you know what most of these common problems have been solved already and what else, like okay what am i going to do i'm going to bring you like one one hundred thousandth more efficiency of this thing and you know, this. <laughs> and not to say there's a ton of great businesses waiting to be started but in in crypto when you leverage or in decentralized business models What you're doing is you're actually leveraging a new incentive structure and your opportunity for growth and impact for change. I feel like it's instead of giving someone a 1% value, you bring like a 10,000% upside value because you really transition ownership and how businesses work and how profits looked at when you can build a user owned product.
0: With scale, one thing I'm curious about too. Looking at this company, you were reading about it, and you were trying to, you know, kind of educate yourself. But you also had to bring on a CTO at some point too. How are you building the team initially for this? Understanding that, okay, there's a there's a space here, but you're going to need probably a solid team to make this happen. I mean, how did you go about that initially, Jack?
1: Yeah, so so uh, I I was r- incredibly fortunate to uh, to have known to have some good friends that were investors that. That uh, you know, that I you know had built these relationships over time through a lot of hard work. And Mike yeah. Wills uh, in 2008, he and and Miracle were getting Floodgate started. And I got to know them really well when I was starting my first company. And then uh, Sonny Dillon and Rick Thompson at Signia Ventures. Uh, Sonny was a good friend of mine, and 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 they said, "Hey, you're starting something in crypto. You're guess what? We know this guy, Stan Cloudco." He's, you know, he's got a PhD in physics. He's one of the top cryptographers in the world. He has built and sold a bunch of scalable companies, and um, and he has 18 years of crypto experience. And he's starting something in this space. You two should meet. And <laughs> and so thankfully, you know, the, all those investors who had invested in Stan's prior business introduced the two of us because they knew both of us. And and so Stan and I met, and and I had a bunch of ideas. Stan had a bunch of ideas, and. And Stan, you know, Stan said, hey, we can start a decentralized Uber where you know we take the 30% cut from Uber and we give it to everybody else. We can start a decentralized Twitter or even like decentralized Google. And he had these six things he was working on. I was like, Stan, why can you solve how can you solve all of these problems? And he he showed me the architecture, and he's really a technical visionary. And so Stan, you know, deserves all the credit for understanding the deep nuances of blockchain. And, ha- and have like architecting this solution. And then, and then I, you know, our brains combined and I said, Hey, let's, this is infrastructure. This is, you know, decentralized software as a service or decentralized platform as a service. Let's go deliver this and let's help all the other people that want to start these businesses and bring this to them. And, and, you know, we built the business model and the economic model and, and that's how we got started. And then you know, then it was uh, one of the things I learned then. And then we're like, hey, now we have to grow a team. We got uh, we got financing from Signia and Floodgate. And then we, you know, we pretty quickly thereafter raised uh, another another $10 million financing round um six months after we got started, and we started growing the team. And and I learned a major lesson in my first startup, and that was don't grow too fast. And so you one of my one of my kind of philosophies and rules of startups is when a person feels like they're getting ripped into, that's when you should hire. Now <laughs> you have a bench and be like talking to people and have people to pull in and have a good way to get people hired quickly. But you know, oftentimes at small companies and people raise capital, they raise, they hire too many people and then people fight over jobs. And, and you don't really have product market fit. And then you have all this team infighting and you have, um, all these inefficiencies and you end up having to let people go if you like hit a, hit a roadblock. And so that was, that was one of the things that I think helped us. We grew slowly. And when someone was getting torn in half, we, you know, replicated their other half by hiring somebody.
0: (laughs) With that slow growth. I mean, what were some of the things you were doing to actually grow once you had this?
1: Yeah. So, so one thing we did, and, and I, I think most people that start companies who are at least multi-time entrepreneurs or really are, are interested in entrepreneurship aren't starting things in spaces they've worked in for 10 years or 20 years. They, those people exist and they know a problem set really well and they'll go start a business in that area. But a lot of us, right, we're looking for problems, we're understanding situations, we're gathering data, we're finding pain points. And so for us, it was uh, it was really... Uh, you know, we had to go learn more about this unique business. And so I had yeah. coached a few business to developer companies and was able to learn more about this B2D open source space. But I, I had a lot to learn about open source. I had a lot to learn about uh, crypto as like actually formally like really working in this space. I had a lot to learn about business to developer marketing and open source marketing. And so what we did is we went to school and we studied all the different parameters And we recognize that this is a different beast. It's not, you can't take an open source B2B model and apply it. You can't take, you know, we saw people in crypto that just had no organization and structure and (laughs) and not doing very well. And some of them creating great developer communities, but still not having good follow through. And we, we studied and analyzed these things and took our own knowledge and our own experience too. And, and then just kind of, you know, applied that to growth and, um, and then built a really phenomenal team. And. And it's been, going, it's been going really well. I mean, startups often, I'm ready for our challenges. All startups will have a lot of challenges. We've been fortunate these first three years to, you know, have normal challenges, not like, you know, backbreaking challenges, which can also happen.
0: So. Yeah, yeah. Which definitely do happen at <laughs> a number of startups, especially at a time in a global pandemic and things are just mm-hmm. different and that side of things. And, and what, the, what is like the business model behind scale itself? I'm curious about that too.
1: Yeah. So scale is a user owned network. So this is a perfect example. Like, okay, so I'll, I'll give people, so a lot of people aren't working in the space. I'm going to, I'm going to give a real world example around like ride shares. So let's say I wanted to go compete with, with Lyft or Uber Lyft and Uber take like 30% of every ride from the drivers because they have to do software, they have to do marketing, they have to do all this stuff. And you know, they still don't run at a profit. What, um, because they keep spending on growth now to grow. Yeah. Yeah. Now what a user owned economy would be is you would have open source software. That is the product. There'd be a team that gets to, that builds that product and like an open source community and what happens is people pay still in Fiat for the, for the ride. But you would have a, and that could be done through a digital stable currency, um, or just you know through regular money. And then the boost or the fee on top can be you know done in this decentralized cryptocurrency. And you can create this model where all of a sudden the rider gets a cut of the maybe the rider gets ten uh, percent of the profit, or of that thirty percent cut. The driver gets an extra ten percent. And and 10% only goes back to the people that are working and running the network and running servers elsewhere and running, you know, working on the code elsewhere. You basically flip the business model on its head and you, it's a co-op, the community owns it. Now, if you look at scale, with scale, that's an example of how you disrupt a business. Um, Scale is a user-owned economy for running servers. So anybody listening, you could go plug a server in the wall. If you have some DevOps skills, you go you go uh, up, you know, you get the latest version of scale running, make sure you have the right version running, you join the network, all of a sudden, your computer is a part of this connected network. And then you get paid to run the computer in the network, because you're providing this compute resource to this big pool. And at any given time, a subsection of that pool is getting kind of divided out to the different applications that run. And it's like Amazon Web Services, but instead of Jeff Bezos making money, it's the people that make money are people <laughs> who run the servers, and then the people who the people when people pay, they actually pay for it in a scale token, and people um, get paid in scale tokens as well.
0: And take me through the initial coin offering that you recently did as well.
1: Yeah, so so th- this also folds into the business model, okay? And and so and, and by the way, I have to I'll throw in some compliance best practice here because of the the nature of this industry, so. Uh, it was it, it, not in a, it. Was, what scale the scale token is? It's actually a piece of software that you can use. If you buy it, you can stake it into the network. And what you're doing is you're putting your money at risk because what you each one of these servers needs to have a, a certain amount of collateral. And if they act maliciously and try to take money from a developer, or they don't run this, the, the product the right way, they basically lose this collateralized money. And so scale operates that way. It also operates to, you know, if you buy a uh, rent a scale chain, you use scale tokens to purchase, uh, to plug it into the network. If, uh, you know, you're running a a server, you're getting paid in scale. So scale is the currency that, but it's not just a currency, it's actually software. And so what happened, what we did is we didn't do an ICO or initial coin offering, we did a proof of use launch. So we had 4,000 people from 90 countries buy scale tokens and in order for them to formally get them in in 60 days they have to actually use the token so that means they go to this interface and this uh, a company called consensus built this product called activate and you buy this token and then you you just go you and you plug in and you it basically automates in a few clicks it stakes it into the scale network and then you're collateralizing the security for all of these applications that want to rent the compute power of the network. And so um, it was pretty amazing to see for, and, and by the way, this was done not by Scale Labs, which I'm the founder of, this was done by a, uh, an entity in Liechtenstein, and that is a nonprofit foundation that really is kind of the shepherd of the network and the Scale Labs team, we're writing the code, we're, you know, it's open source and there's other people contributing, but we're doing a lot of the functions that a business a company would do but, yeah. um, but you know, hey, this, this stuff's owned by everybody, um, not just us. And um, so anyways, that was how this, this to your question, that is how we launched with the coin distribution. Well,
0: with that too, I mean, just thinking kind of more broadly on, on Scale Labs too. I mean, with this, you have this idea, you build the kind of initial team or your co-founder at least. And then this has been almost three years at this point. I mean, what have been the challenges along the way to making this a reality of you know your kind of your initial vision because there's always your initial vision, a lot of work. And then hopefully realizing that, what have been the challenges along the way to make this actually a reality, Jack?
1: Yeah. So so one nice thing is our product market fit hasn't shifted. <clears throat> we've we've evolved and iterated on the product as like, oh wow, that could be a security risk. We should integrate this code. <laughs> we should change this. But the thing is, gas fees on Ethereum are as high as ever, and there's more and more people than ever before that want to use it. So there's a there's a screaming hair on fire need for the product that and the network and the, the solution that we built, and so that's been amazing. Now the challenges uh, and this are just this is an incredibly complicated, sophisticated product to build. Stan, my co-founder, says he's like he's like this is about as complicated and sophisticated as the iPhone. Is what he likes to to get into this code, I mean, we're talking deep math, right? This isn't just like, it's not just computer science. It's incredibly sophisticated math combined with computer science. And it's, it's literally a network that runs itself. People just plug servers in the wall and somebody shows up and says, Hey, I want, um, I want to buy the product. The, net, the, the network, it just talks to itself and it procures the resources and says, oh, these ones are available. It pings all the different servers and randomly in a secure way applies the resources and gives the resources to that um, application. And so this thing runs itself. It pays everybody on its own. It's an automated accounting system. And let's say people, someone wants to change pricing. Everybody who has a token who's staking can vote. And then that vote in an automated fashion will then go and change the economics and the pricing. I mean, it's literally there's so much comp- complexity here. <laughs> and, um, the product has been the tough, you know, one of the toughest pieces. But we're there, and it just it took longer than we would have wanted. But our peers and people trying to solve similar problems, you know, it's taken them about the same time and, and a little longer. So I think from a benchmarking perspective, we're fast. But from our initial perspective we're about a year slower than we thought it would be when we first started.
0: Yeah. I mean, cause it is such a, such a complex thing. And on that note, I know we talked a little bit about the, the team building side of it, but with the complexities of this, obviously you have to have a great team to be able to build this, solve these problems as you've grown, how have you hired, you know, been able to hire the best talent to be able to build something so complex as what you're doing with scale labs?
1: Yeah. So we, we have <clears throat> a few, a few strategies. So, one, Stan, who stands from Ukraine, he spent, I think 20 years in the Bay Area and got a he did physics research at Stanford, got a CS master's at Stanford and joined a startup that was incubated out of Stanford. so he and then lived in <clears throat> lived in Palo Alto for a long time. Uh, he moved back to Ukraine and, and one of the and it, and one of the cool things about Ukraine is there's a plethora not a plethora, but a lot of really really smart math focused engineers yeah and, and that's stan right he's a he's a physicist and and um, you know did, and a great computer scientist as well but he's been able to uh, hire because I think his status in that community some I mean we have people that have won national math competitions na- national computer science or physics or informatics or you know top placement in like the Facebook hacker cup and all these olympiad cs competitions so uh, it's just really a unique advantage to have a co-founder who's over there. It's really hard to outsource super high quality talent um, and, and manage a team well. And so Stan's been able to do that there. And, and then from San Francisco, we have a solutions engineering team, marketing, product management, um, business development, operations, accounting, and finance, and all the kind of line of business, you know non-engineering functions and And, you know, initially it was somewhat difficult to hire because crypto was really hot. And I think a lot of very talented people in San Francisco and Silicon Valley were thinking, yeah, this thing is like a bubble market. There's nothing real here. (laughs) Um, And so we were so, you know, just naturally washes out a certain amount of the talent. But the other half, the other like piece side of that is then you get people that really see the vision and then you can find incredibly motivated, talented people because it's really a mission driven effort. And also there's high upside financially um, and you're doing something incredibly innovative. So you end up kind of naturally filtering to the right people. And we were again, able to slowly and with a lot of intention, build a really good team. And there's still, there's less than 30 people. There's 27 people, uh, which I think is a perfect number. If anyone started companies, like once you get past 30 people, the organization really changes. The CEO doesn't know every employee and things about every yeah. employee. And, and so we're trying to keep the team about this size and just grow the open source community and get you know more and more people involved. And that's one of the beauties of having a token is that anybody who owns a token is an owner of the, of the network and really an owner and how they, they can vote. They can do things with that token. And it's a co-op almost. And... and you end up growing instead of having 10,000 employees you have 30 employees and but there's 10,000 people that collectively work for the initiative.
0: Right, a lot of people contributing in some way or another who're not necessarily employees but obviously helping everything grow. And and I want to go back to your point of of you know kind of not growing too fast. Take me through then your experience at Octana with I mean you grew to 150 plus employees. The differences between that and what you're kind of dealing with scale labs and the growth side of things
1: I think a big piece of hiring is just making sure your product market fit functions in a manner that lets you be incredibly scalable and yeah. we uh, we had to hire a lot of people just to run this business because of the nature of the business and that's that's frankly a piece of just big heavy expensive enterprise software where you know I you know we were selling you know Five million and ten million dollar recurring revenue deals to the largest pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies in the world, and it just takes a lot of people to do implementation, to do um, you know, it, data cleansing, to do data integration, to do all these yeah. pieces of work, and you know, and so there's obviously great uh, values when you get to the point where you get all the big customers and the money's coming in, but building to that point is just painful, I'll tell you. <laughs> And I think you know it, it's it, it was great to get to the other side at Octana and then see like all this success and see people using the product all over the world and uh, and seeing like you know you know three hundred people work at the company and be employed and have a great jobs. So, but getting there is painful. And so one of the, one of my goals uh, when I, with with scale was hey let's do let's be scalable ourselves. Let's build product. That, you know we can get to really huge leveraged impact without having to hire a lot of people. And um, not that we don't want to hire people, but um, when you run a big, we still can bring value to a lot of people, but they're working in the community um, as opposed to working directly and like needing to be managed. And so, and uh, just, you know, the operational load is is lighter. I guess you could say in the business unit economics are better.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a huge part of it. And, and one of the things that goes to that is is obviously fundraising and to be able to grow and going, uh, have more employees and grow the business itself. So with the fundraising side, though, from someone like yourself who's gone through multiple rounds, raised millions and millions of dollars, um, what would you tell other entrepreneurs on the fundraising side to either have that process Go better, more efficient, more effective. Um, it's never easy. I've interviewed many entrepreneurs about this, but anything you'd like to share on on that side from your experience of of how to get through that process of raising funds for your company?
1: Yeah. So I think one of the I mean one of the main things I'd say is I and I went through this myself is people like in this you know one of the main learning lessons I have now and I wish if I could go back uh, to myself in two thousand eight when I was. You know founding my first company give myself advice i would say don't fight investors meaning and don't fight the momentum if investors are saying no and you know one like if you have confidence in yourself and your team and they're saying no you have a product market fit issue okay but a lot of yeah. entrepreneurs just want to be like oh i trust me i see the vision that you, none of you see and the thing is, investors are actually a really great barometer for your product market fit and what's hot right now and where things are going. And, hey, you know, guess there, look at all the people that turned Mark Zuckerberg down initially or, you know, Larry <laughs> and Sergey or, you know, we hear all these stories, right? Or the people that, you know, shut the door on, I mean, there's just many of these scenarios where you hear about people, you know, the Airbnb team getting rejected and rejected. But guess what? The majority, you, you maybe will be an anomaly but the majority of successful companies um, have a lot of, I guess, like hungry investors trying to get in their their deals. Yeah. And when you have when you're there, life is ten thousand times easier. And so I've been, you know, you know, we had to really like fight our way up from the bottom the first time, and because we saw something that was coming, we were just we were just early. And you know, hey, we were right, but we were early, and we had a couple lean years, <laughs> and I think the investors knew that. Um, and I think for anyone out there starting a company like use the investors as a barometer and when you're out there pitching also consider it pro- your own product market fit assessment on your product market fit like you know you need to if they, everyone's saying no and has the same objections they're probably right and ask them and try to figure out like where where the opportunity is where um, where where is the, the current growth and and learn and, you know, hey, you also have to be like firm and have an opinion and see the future that other people don't see. But if no one's seeing it, that's not a good sign. And fundraising is, it's almost like, I I think it's like pushing, you can either push a string uphill, which doesn't work, or it's like, you know, you're like being pulled uphill and like, and and you're holding onto the string for dear life. And you're, you know, (laughs) you just where you want to be. And yeah. it's like skiing or wake, like water skiing or wakeboarding. If anyone's done that, like if the boat's not moving and the ropes like not tout, you're you're gonna fall in the water. But if the boat's yeah. moving, it's a lot easier. And fundraising is similar. And um and there's so many talented entrepreneurs that I think waste too much time chasing the wrong problems. And you know you you should use your investors. There's so many investors now too that are accessible, and so many funds that. You can get a pretty good read quickly, and um, but just try to make sure you're you're chasing the right problem.
0: Yeah, there's there's definitely a way to get attention at least from from investors at this point. To your to your point of being so many investors out there, and we've seen that now. There's more and more, which becomes interesting on the investor side of it too. But uh, one thing with that too, even before that even happens, there's there's this discussion of equity within co-founders. Tell me about your experience with, with the volume of equity. Obviously, you don't have to say that the numbers or anything, but I know that I got this question a number of times from people about how do you go about equity splits? How do you think through that? How have you gone through that process, Jack?
1: Yeah, and I think every situation is unique. So maybe someone yeah. has an initial idea and they're working on something, they bring someone on, so they should get a little more. Um, you know, I, I actually think all that's fair. Some people like it should be totally split evenly, um, but I do think having some like some not some intentional breakup is fine. But the main thing to keep in mind while you're doing that is success is probably going to be binary. Okay. Um, if you, your co-founder has a little more than you or if you are, you know, less like it, it really shouldn't, you know, you should not be dramatically at distance because then you create a really bad, uh, you know, incentive structure. And you, but like, if you're, reasonably close hey if you're successful you're both or you know you're going to be successful and and so i that's what i would push people to keep in mind is outcomes are usually binary you're usually gonna be incredibly successful or not and um and here's the other thing if you're not incredibly successful but you're like reasonably successful and you're having to keep (laughs) more rounds at like normal valuations or uh, level or down valuations which happens you get washed out for that initial piece anyways, and you get re-upped to try to motivate you. And, you know, all of these things kind of then it's like almost a reallocation of value. And that happens all the time, too. So people can waste a ton of time arguing about things. <laughs> and it just gets washed out anyways, um, unless you're really on a, a, you know, a nice trajectory, which not, it doesn't always happen. So I think that's something people don't think about, too. With uh,
0: when, coming back to scale now with scale labs, with understanding that there's this big vision for where you want to get to and, and a lot a lot to do before that, um, how do you manage kind of the the short term day to day with with the long term, making sure you're on track with the vision of what you ultimately want to accomplish?
1: I think one of the things I learned, and I think I saw this in other people, and I saw I recognized in myself that I was developing these skills. It's the ability to to wear different hats, but also have different perspectives within those hats, and so when you're an entrepreneur and there's like just two of you or four of you or 10 people in your company or even 30, still, (laughs) you have to do some mundane, boring work that has to get done. That is elbow grease. And it's just hard work. And, and then 10 minutes later, you need to snap out and be able to think what, you know, like have a decision that will forever change your trajectory of your business. And so you have to be able to context switch, switch, but also perspective switch. And I used to do this thing where, cause it was so like, I'd had to, I'd have to go be a lead generation rep at my, you know, at a I had like, I was the only person who would do any BD or sales and it was just and you know, everyone else, pure engineering. Yeah. So, so I would put this hat on and I'd be like, okay, like I'm going to pretend I'm like just graduated college and I'm getting paid to just get leads and I would <laughs> hammer away and I'd set a clock and I'd do it for like three hours, four hours. And then, then I'm like, okay, now we need to, now I need to like really look at, you know, what we're trying to do here. What features do are the, are the, you know, do we need, like, how can we, I interface with product management and, you know, and the other piece of our, uh, the other, and engineering to make sure we're getting the right features built that are going to help get these big deals done. And then, okay, now let's talk about financing. How are we, you know, <laughs> you know, should we be raising this much or this much, you have to really like, I literally pretend I had a different hat on and I was a different person and it kind of helped me. And you have to do less of that, the bigger you get, but in the early days, you need to be able to do that. And I, I see a lot of people that are really good only at the big picture or they're too day to day and they can't step out and you have to be able to swap back and forth and have mental techniques to get your help, your, your brain in the right place to do that.
0: And on the note of Octana too, with something I'm thinking about as well, because I've interviewed a number of people who have had exits or they've, they've left their company after a number of years for you, you were there for nine years. What, uh, what led you to, to leave? I think
1: the average SaaS company has a seven year, you know, exit timeline. And so for me, I was like, you know, so I say that cause you bet everybody, if you're starting, if you're taking people's money, be ready and committed to do like seven years. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <Three> years, <laughs> like Nine years. And And what it came down to was I was like, okay, like I'm coming up on the 10th year of working here or it was like, it was, this is the eighth year. And I was like, wow, I'm going to be at a decade soon. And, and I just thought to, and I, you know, really we have like maybe four decades of really high quality work we can do and maybe more, I I don't want to limit, or some people can do a lot more than that, but a lot of people are in our sweet spot for roughly that amount of time. Right. Right. And, and I was thinking to myself and, and that's sweet, but there's still a lot of value you can add before or after or whatever. But, and, and I was thinking, what do I want to, what impact do I want to have on the world? And while I'm here, you know, like while I'm in my prime Yeah. and, and, and I was like, you know, I want to go out and try and start another company and like change the world. And I'm, you know, I've got limited capacity to do that. I'm like just getting, you know, just got married and got a kid and I'm like, you know, my kids get older, and my it's going to be even harder. More <laughs> kids. I was like, you know, I'm gonna I've got a small opportunity to go take another at bat and go do it. And so, but hey, I had so much passion and love for the company and for my customers and the product. It was really tough, and I actually did a long transition. I did like a like almost a nine month transition, and and it was good for me financially. I was able to. You know, also do it in a nice way. That I'm a major equity holder, right? And you know, protect yeah. a lot of my equity, and and, uh, and then maintain, you know, maintain an advisor position there. And the company just keeps growing. I mean, it hasn't it hasn't had an exit yet, but you know, they haven't needed to. So that's also a good thing. Some companies exit because they're forced to; they can't get access to more capital. Um, other ones just have amazing opportunities that hit them in the face, and then they can't say no to. But a lot of companies are just running really healthy businesses and growing every year. And that's what I, what's happening with Octana. So I'm, I'm proud of the team and keep in touch with the team still. And it was tough to go, but I, I had a calling and I had to go do it. And I'm glad I did. You know, Here I am three years later and we've got a, another you know, an, a different space that's growing with a great team and a fun problem to solve. So it's been, it's worked out well.
0: Yeah, and it's always fascinating to kind of see that what that next step is. I know one of the people who had on uh, Cole Zucker sold his sold his company Green Creative and then uh, yeah, had a time period he was like I'm not going to start another company. Like, I'm done. I'm good. I'm going to do something else and just like <laughs> not think about that and then ultimately came back to starting another company. I think it's hey hero uh, in a different space and you just find out that you know, what do you want to be doing with your time? Especially when you have that flexibility on on what that could be. I mean, it could be anything in theory, but what do you want to work on? What do you want to spend your time on? How can you do a business Differently, then, uh, and then to your point of Octana as well. I mean, they've raised, like you said, access to capital. They've raised tens of millions, I think it is, uh, since then in the last few years. And so, company continues to thrive, yeah. which is great. You
1: know, over a hundred million now, and and just close another twenty million dollar financing round. Yeah, they're just continuing to grow. It's it's great to see it. And and the other thing, like and I have to tell you, as an entrepreneur and people who are entrepreneurs listening or thinking about starting companies it's really tough to leave your company and your baby. And I wanted to leave for a while because I wanted to go start a new company and I just kind of felt like I couldn't. And because I was like, I have to see this through, I have to see this through. And I, you know, but then you get to a certain point, like, hey, I'm actually going to do myself and the company more of a service because if I'm so passionate about doing something else, there's probably somebody who's equally passionate about having the job I have now. So let's go win-win. And you're not trapped, and you can feel kind of trapped though, because like I have to stay here. And um, and again, it was you know fortunate for me because it was all about like hunting for you know future upside and growth and new challenges. And it wasn't you know anything negative. It was just really like you know I was hungry to go do what I'm doing now. And-
0: Jack, I'm I'm curious with the with that exit with leaving Octana, I mean, you're still there as an advisor, but not full time there, obviously, but. What were those conversations like with your co-founders when you were deciding to leave?
1: Yeah you know, i uh, and i I just have such good friendships with my my co-founders and you know our our exec team there that it was a very open dialogue. and um and that's why you know it took me nine months to actually like formally go <laughs> because <laughs> like I just heard about them and uh, the team and the success. And so there was there was really no friction. It was, I mean, I think it was sad because we were a family and spent so much time together. And I mean, yeah. and with Derek, my co-founder, you know, he, we were like brothers. We went to Japan, I think 50 times together, uh, you know, building up a huge Japan team and business in Japan and, you know, and then traveled all over the world, uh, growing the business in all the different regions and, and David and Rob and a lot of the, the team there, you know, we're really close. So, When you're at a startup, it's, there's an emotional connection, but I think the secret is just having really, it's like any relationship, uh, they work better when you have good communication and you're open and you're transparent and then, um, yeah, so it was thankfully not friction full and uh, I did it in the right way is that I didn't, you know, have any negative impact or at least minimize the negative impact.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that perspective. And 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 Jack, have there been any particular books that have been uh, impactful for you, whether it be personal or professional? I'm a huge reader, so I'm always curious what people are reading.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My, I think until I was about thirty, I read like, for a long time like only business books, and I was reading like business books right and left, and I had a, I was impacted by a lot of them. And then then at a certain point, I think. I just started reading science fiction only <laughs> 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 and like, and and I did, I realized well, wow, I'm and I started getting a lot of my business knowledge from blogs and I started yeah. reading a lot of like good sci-fi and it like kind of got my brain into this creative place. I think that's helped me. So I don't, I don't have a book right now to rec. I mean, I've got like, maybe I need to like write like a list of like 30 or 50 <laughs> that I would recommend to you need, but I'll just say that that's my, sh- that was a shift that helped me really. Uh, yeah. I think, and especially if you're working really hard all day long and then you lay in bed and you're like, okay, now time to read a business book and online. Like, yeah. So, uh, instead I'll recommend like read Game of Thrones or, uh, you know, like,
0: the Hey, we'll take it. We'll take it. That's why I, that's why Dune, I ask. I want really to know.
1: Read the Dune series, read the, uh, read the foundation series. Uh, <laughs>
0: That's perfect. That's perfect. And I think it's an interesting point you make because uh after asking this question to a number of people, there's a there's a mix of those responses. Like Some people have obviously business books they think about right away. Uh some people are on the same thing, science fiction or something else, just non-business, something else to kind of take your mind off of it. And uh that's you know, everyone has their own thing with it, which which is great. That's the best part of it. And and Jack, where can people go to learn more about scale connecting with you as well?
1: Yeah, so if you go to scale.network. So that is scale with a K, S K A L E dot network. You'll, that will take you to the website. You can follow me on Twitter at Jack O'Halloran. It's been really a pleasure and been fun talking about entrepreneurship and starting businesses. And I'm on a lot of podcasts. I'm usually talking about crypto only. So this is (laughs) me to kind of step out and have a different type of conversation.
0: Yeah, and I appreciate you sharing the perspectives. Because I mean, someone who started multiple companies and you know raised so much money, there's just different takeaways you have than some of our entrepreneurs. And so I appreciate you taking the time. And everything will be on the show notes. Just go grind.com slash podcast. You can get the links to everything we discussed and uh, contact him as well. Uh, Jack, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it.
1: All right. Hey, Justin, really, uh, really fun. Thanks for having me. And I, I enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. You wanna know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies. Every single week, I deliver it right to you jessicogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.